everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is Jeff Kaufman, who is the CEO and founder of Trent. Jeff is a 32-year veteran journalist and is an award-winning Emmy foreign and war correspondent with ABC News, CBS News, and CBC News. In his 30 years of journalism, he estimates he spent thousands of hours manually transcribing interviews, speeches, and press conferences. And that experience has what has led him to found Trent, a speech-to-text transcription company. I'm very excited to welcome Jeff to the show today and look forward to this conversation. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Anita. Great to be here. If I had to say one tagline, is it Trent a speech-to-text transcription company, or would you say it in a different way? So that's how we began. We were really the first company to leverage artificial intelligence to transcribe conversations like this, to do the heavy lifting of transcription, as I like to say. We've evolved beyond that. We don't really see ourselves as a transcription company. We're a storytelling company now. We're a content production company in the audio and video space. I, I like to think of the world we live in now as, as really contrasted with the 20th century. The, when I was a kid, we grew up reading newspapers on print, reading magazines on paper, sending postcards when we traveled. My grandparents would have sent telexes and telegrams. News came in in newsrooms on teletype machines on multiply carbon paper. We now live, that was the text-driven economy. Yeah, radio and TV were part of the 20th century. We now live in what I call the voice economy where conversations like we're having now are how content is created. Uh, this would have been you know, a magazine article 30, 40 years ago. True. Today, it's a podcast. You know, podcasts didn't exist in those days. And radio shows did, but they were very limited and very few people had access to the airwaves. So what we need in the 21st century are tools to navigate the spoken word that parallel the kind of innovation that Microsoft Word and word processing introduced in the 1980s. The ability to search, share, uh, discover, archive, collaborate on text needs to be replicated for audio and video. And that's really what Trent is. So, so we began as a simple transcription tool. Now we're much, much more than that. We're a collaborative platform for content creation, starting with raw, recorded or live audio or video. So explain that to me a little bit more. How does what Trent do differ from other transcription services? It's a fair question. I, I think, listen, there are now a number of people who have copied our innovation and, and who do what we do or do it slightly differently. Somebody once said to me, don't fear competitors because if you don't have any, you have to question whether you really have a business. So, you know, I, I think you have to be a, a bit mature about this. There are worthy competitors. But the space we've carved out is quite different. First of all, you know, we offer two levels of product. One is what we call a prosumer product for individuals, people like you on your own, that scales to a collaborative team product for two to 10 users. And then we have Trend Enterprise for 11 plus. And, and you know, one of the things that defines us is collaboration. You know, you're sitting where you are, I'm sitting where I am. We can print this and the two of us can work live off that transcript, the Trent transcript, the interactive, living, searchable transcript, which is both text and audio, could be video too. And we can work like Google Docs from different areas, from, you know, from different places, either in a building or geography. So that's a very distinct difference. If I was your producer and you're assembling this, I can go through this from where I'm sitting 
and, and the two of us can comment, we can highlight, we can time, we, nice. we can build the story. That, that's a huge difference. And ironically, or I would like to say that I, I saw a lockdown coming, but I wouldn't like to say that because it, but what I did see was the need for collaborative uh, tools that actually uh, fit perfectly into the remote work that's been forced onto us through the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And, and so we have been doing staggeringly well under the lockdown because we enable remote working. We, we allow people to collaborate from home as if they were sitting next to each other. We also have enterprise level data security. Not all products online are the same. You know, when you have uh, clients like the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, they need to know that they're not going to get hacked, that they're going to upload to your cloud, that they're not going to wake up reading that the raw interview transcripts were suddenly exposed on some hostile website. And so, you know, we've put a huge amount of effort. This gets into the weeds, but we're certified by the International Standards Organization, something called ISO 27001. Something I'd never heard of, I confess, but it uh, turns out to be the platinum standard of data security. It, we, we have military-grade data security, and that's really important for us. I mean, it wins us a lot of contracts because hmm. the other companies out there don't have that. And I can tell you, I know why. It took us two and a half years to get there, and we get random audits on this. We have companies that try to hack us in order to, to expose vulnerabilities, and, and I'm proud to report that we're solid. Okay. Uh, we have customer success you know, we, that teaches people how to use the tool, that ensures that they've got engagement. When we have hundreds of companies with, with hundreds and hundreds of, of, of people using us, they don't want to pay for, for, for seats on Trent and discover that half the people aren't using us. And we get that. So we do training, we do monitoring. We'll say, hey, listen, these people aren't using it. Can we get reach out to them? It is not simply a matter of put up a website, let people sign up and, and use it. Right, right. Okay, interesting. Well, I definitely am going to try it out. For sure. <laughs> okay, so I know you've been asked this question a number of times, but I want to ask, how do you go from being a war journalist to founding a company? Like, I know that you saw that there was a pain around this transcription of your interviews and not having a tool, but it's another thing to say, okay, there's this pain, well, I'm going to leave this profession that I've known for all my life and become an entrepreneur. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey? You know, I called myself the accidental entrepreneur. There was no grand plan. I didn't actually pl- uh, see this coming. And in, uh, in fact, if, if you'd met me 10 years ago, when I actually, in 2010, I was doing some pretty interesting work. 10 years ago this summer, I was in uh, northern Chile covering the, the Chile mine rescue when 33 miners were trapped half a mile underground. I was the first foreign reporter there, and I spent most of most of uh, the summer and fall of uh, 20, uh, 2010 covering that incredibly dramatic story, probably one of the most compelling and interesting stories of, of a pretty exciting career. But I, so I didn't see this coming. And if you'd said to me then, you're going to be running a tech company uh, with 75 employees and revenue and the many millions and, you know, in a global reach, I would have laughed and said, I'll bet you very favorable odds for you that, that this isn't going to happen. And I would have lost that bet. But, you know, I think one of the fun things about life as you grow older, if you're open to surprising yourself, is that you end up doing things that you just never saw happening. This kind of, this, uh, I, 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 at the end of 2010, I moved from, from Miami, where I was ABC News correspondent for uh, Florida, the Caribbean, Latin America, to London as ABC News 
London correspondent. That's the American ABC, not the Australian ABC. And had a really good run. 2011 covered the Arab Spring, mostly in Libya, but also in Egypt and Tunisia. And won my second heavy covering the fall of Gaddafi during the Arab Spring. And was really doing the work that I loved and dreamed of. I mean, war correspondent work, I wouldn't say I loved, but it was incredibly interesting and really challenges every part of you and gives you a window on the human condition that, you know, very few people get to see. And, you know, I I wouldn't say it's something that I I would urge people to see, but it's just a reality. Anyway, I I was restless. I'd been at ABC by 2014 for for 14 years and have been broadcast journalist for more than 30, as you know, and was feeling that maybe it was time to look for a new challenge. I did not see tech as part of that, but I began teaching some, building some global journalism programs for uh, an American and Canadian university in London. And in the process of researching that, met some developers who'd done work in speech to text and really not in speech to text, but text and audio, mm. not speech to text. And, and I, I kind of was interested in what they were doing. And I said, you know, I've, I've wondered why when automated speech is getting so accurate. I can't use it to transcribe my interviews because I hate transcribing. And they kind of went, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, being kind of accurate isn't good enough because I need to trust my transcripts. I I look at speech to text and being 90% right is not good enough. I need to know that it's 100% or else I'm going to get myself in trouble. And and, uh, so we kind of kept in touch over Skype this was 2014 at this point and chatted. I didn't know these guys at all. And these were three developers and we played around a little bit and I didn't have any plan. I just was kind of curious to know whether we could do something. And the reality was that the first sort of experiment proof concept that we, we put together was so astonishingly interesting and promising hmm. that it was like that moment when, you know, you see in a cartoon, a light bulb going off over you, over the character's head. And that light bulb was over my head. And it was like, I remember saying to them, I think we've just invented the future. Either we get together and make this into something or we go our separate ways and you're going to walk into a Starbucks in a couple of years and see somebody on a platform like we've just sketched out. And I thought, well, I'm ready for a new challenge and I had no idea. I mean, I think if I'd known how hard this would be, I, I, I might have. Talked twice. Uh, yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, clearly uh, I like challenges and, and I'm curious. And I just knew in my gut that the world needed this. And, and I was right. I didn't know how to do it. And I sure, sure had no business experience. But so I raised some, some pre-seed money. We, the four of us met in an Airbnb in Florence, December 1st, 2014. And we spent a couple of weeks sitting around the dining table, sketching out what had to be done. And we moved forward from there. You know, 22 months or so later, at September 2016, we launched our first product and it just took off. I mean, there was a pain point and a need and an appetite. And people continue to send us love letters. They continue to tell us that what, what we've done is magic. Nice. So is it as exciting? You were just talking about Chile and Libya and I, I'm trying to understand that life that you had and then this life as an entrepreneur. I know it's not a fair comparison, but what drives you now that you, that you see a common thread to what drove you in that earlier career that you had? Yeah, I, I think the overlap is curiosity and challenge. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, some people like to be out of their comfort zones. A lot of people don't. I do. 
you know, I like to push myself and, and learn. And I guess, you know, is it ex- as exciting as landing, you know, at, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, knowing that you've got four hours to deadline and you don't have anything shot and you're leading the newscast? Probably not. But, you know, when you've done that for more than 30 years, yeah. you know, at the peak of my time at ABC, I was doing over 100 flights a year. Yeah. If you haven't done it, that sounds cool. But when you're living it, it's pretty exhausting. And, uh, you know, when the American Airlines counter in, at Miami International Airport greets me and says, oh, it's Mr. I have no life because they know me by name. But you kind of go, hmm. I don't regret any of it. It was, it was fascinating. But, but to be honest, if you're asking, do I miss it? No, not for a second. I did it. You know, I think, you know, 30, 30 plus years is a good run and yeah. I'm fine with that. And, and I think I'm actually incredibly on a, on a personal level, really proud of the fact that I found a second career in, you know, in my fifties that is as exciting and challenging as my first career, but in a totally different way. So uh, I think this is so fascinating, so hard, so rewarding and, and also really fun. I mean, the team, yes. building the team has been, you know, I've been involved in absolutely every hire and I continue to be. Nobody gets hired in this company, even though we're now 75, heading for 100 without meeting me. And it's because I really care about the people who make up the team. And, and I think the secret sauce of any successful company and certainly any successful startup is the team. I think, you know, like an eggshell, you just really yep. have to make sure that you don't have people coming in who can crack it. And we made a couple of mistakes, but none fatal. And, and you learn. And, and if you make a mistake, you deal with it. But building a team is incredibly rewarding. And building a product that comes out of your vision is is unbelievably exciting. And, and it's, it takes much longer. It's much harder. I, I think one of the things that journalism, any successful journalist better learn pretty quickly to be comfortable admitting what you don't know. Because particularly when in live broadcast, when you're asked a question and you don't know, you don't make it up. You know, yeah. you're going to get caught out. You're going you're gonna to make a fool of yourself and you're going to regret it. So you have to say, you know, it's a good question. I don't have the answer to it. And, and I think when you are running a startup and you have no business experience, no business degree, you, you don't know how to use Excel to write a, build a spreadsheet, it's really helpful if you're humble about what you don't know. As I say, the things that I brought to this uh, are vision, passion, and authenticity. The rest I've either learned or hired. Yeah, actually, you segued beautifully into my next question, which is, what have you found that are transferable skills? What have you found that you can leverage from your life as a journalist and a war correspondent that has helped you to become the CEO that you are today? I know how to find answers. I'm really good at asking questions and I'm not, and I'm, and I'm not shy about it. And I do thorough research. So I don't just listen to the first person to give me an answer. We had a sort of corporate financial decision recently. I don't want to go into the details of it, but I spoke to probably, it, it was a pretty important decision. So I spoke to probably eight or 10 different people hmm. and came up with a strategy with our COO and it was really successful. And because we'd done our homework when we got into the negotiation, we we were very transparent. It was completely fair, and it worked. And I felt like, wow, this is a good way to do things. You know, ask a lot of questions, reach out, and until when get yourself comfortable with what the options are, and then choose a strategy. So I think asking questions, as I said, I think being comfortable admitting what you don't know, and it's something I say to the entire team. There is no shame in admitting 
that you're not sure what to do. It is catastrophic to say, yes, I can do it when you know you can't and then fail and hurt the company and hurt your colleagues. So, uh, you know, I, I think that kind of honesty and, and um, directness is, is really important. I think also having seen a lot of horror and a, and a lot of suffering, I have a really different perspective than most people on what a bad day is. And, and I think having spent a lot of time in conflict zones and, and seen a lot of terrible things, my worst day at Trent is better than a lot of people's best days. And I think it's important to know that as much as you have bad days and there are times when you have doubt, these are not uh, life and death Yep. Uh, situations. And it gives me a lot of perspective. I don't panic under pressure. I think one of the things that you learn, and I learned by making the mistake, candidly, is you know, when I was in Haiti in 2004, covering a very violent revolution, we got caught in some crossfire. And it was pretty scary, I admit. And uh, I don't think I handled it very maturely, to be honest. I was pretty scared. We were in a vehicle and we couldn't get out of the area. And I remember we had private security. It was, this was with ABC News. And uh, and the, our security detail sitting in the front turned to me and he said, shut the fuck up. You're not helping. And I realized I could never do that again. You know, it was being uh, so close anxious. To death. Uh, well, I don't know if I was so close to death, but being scared and, and, and articulating it distracts people from focus. And it, mm. it, 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 it undermines rational decision making. And it also undermines people's confidence in you. And I realized in that moment that I couldn't do that again. And I don't think I have. I mean, I realized that the worst thing is that the calmer you've got to be because you've got to be able to think rationally. And, and that's certainly true when you're dealing with guns, uh, you're in conflict. And that happened a, quite a number of times in Libya and Iraq. But I think even on a much less existential level, when you're running a startup, you're going to have problems, you're going to have catastrophes. You know, the system crashed once. I remember very early on when we were a very small company, the uh, servers went down, we were offline. And the worst thing you can do is start screaming. You just have to say, okay, what happened? Okay, are, are we on this? Have we messaged users? Do people know what's happened? And how long is it going to take? What can I do to help you? And give people a sense of, of calmness and direction so that they understand screaming at people in those circumstances is not going to solve the problem faster. In fact, it's almost guaranteed it will take longer to fix it because you're going to distract people and un unnerve them. So I think all of those lessons really have been very useful. I mean, it turns out that as much as it would be useful to have a, an MBA at times, it turns out the MBA of life is actually maybe as useful, if not more useful, in the sense that it gives you a lot of navigation skills for building a, the, the startup and going along that, that journey. Uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a really uncertain journey and you have to have your feet in the ground to, for, to, to make it work. You know, Jeff, I, I would never have thought that there were so many transferable or translatable skills. But the things that you're talking about, which really helps companies, especially when you go through transitions and dips, is stuff that you can't learn anywhere. I think that the thing also that I really appreciate is that I don't think I could have done this in my 20s. I, I just don't think I had the emotional maturity to do it. And I think, candidly, if you look at the numbers, you find that, that startups founded by people over 45 tend to have a much higher success rate. And I know why. I mean, yeah. it was much harder. When I was 27, 26, 27, I was in Toronto and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation gave me my own show. I was a co-host of a, of a weekly show and I didn't know why they'd done it to be honest. I felt like such an imposter 
And I was so, and I remember you know, working with producers writing scripts and I was very defensive about my writing. And I remember at one point, one of the producers said, she got really mad at me and she said, would you stop this? Every time I make a suggestion, you take it as a personal insult. I'm trying to make you look better. You know, this is a collaboration, grow up. And she was totally right. I needed to be told that. You know, I, I think Mark Zuckerberg hasn't been told that yet. And that's why he's so, he is so thick. You know, he may be a billionaire, but I do not respect that man one bit. I think he is totally deaf to the consequences of what he's done because he's so immature. Nobody's ever spoken truth to him or he's never listened. And I think that that is a problem in your 20s. And I lived it. And, you know, that producer actually in that kind of exchange, which I remember so well, made me change how I worked because I suddenly realized that I was just so nervous about admitting that her idea was better than mine that I rejected it because I was young and insecure. I think at this stage in life, I don't mind being challenged. I thrive on it. I love when people have better ideas than I do. Yeah, yeah. If there are people in our audience or people who want to start a career in entrepreneurship, especially if they're later in life, right? And they don't have the experience. They're not serial entrepreneurs. So they've come from a completely different field like you have. What advice would you give them in terms of how to prepare for the second career? I I think that it's the advice I'd give to a younger person too. I think the first thing is to understand what are your strengths in this journey and what are your weaknesses and deficiencies? And don't pretend to have those weaknesses and deficiencies covered through your own skill set admit them and and bring others in to help you. I think that that's absolutely fundamental. In the early stages, when I think about it, I did the finances for this company for the first two and a half years with accountants. It's amazing that I didn't completely mess up because I have zero financial experience, but I just kept asking questions. And, you know, and I had a friend who was a CFO who I would occasionally call and say, "Uh, what do I do here? I mean, it, I, I sort of laugh at it because in the early stages, you got to do a lot of things that are out of your comfort zone. But I do think it's important to even then admit, I have no idea what I'm doing. I better make sure I don't mess this up. I better make sure that I can turn to some people to help me a little bit where necessary. So I, I, think, that, I think that that's fundamental in any role in life, but certainly in, in entrepreneurship, because if, if you really push yourself out of your, your skill set, you're going to make decisions that are uninformed or that are just plain, plain stupid or wrong. So I think, you know, find people to turn to as when you can afford to hire those skills. You tend to hire smart, younger people in the early days because they'll work for salaries you can afford and you hope that they can reach beyond their skill set. And we have, have had a lot of success in that. As, as the companies grow and you then hire people with a lot of experience and you pay bigger salaries and that's just part of the evolution. But I think that the fundamental for entrepreneurship is to really be honest about the project that you're, you, you have in mind. Is it really something the world wants and needs and, want and mm. will pay for? Because just because it's a good idea doesn't mean that it's a good business. And, and you know, I... I have many times come across people who say, oh yeah, I wanted, I have an idea for a startup and I kind of, and I go, yes, but how exactly are you going to make that pay? And, you know, are you sure that people will pay enough on a a recurring basis to make this a viable business? Right. You have to do your homework before you even start. 
uh, you've got to get some people to who will speak honestly to you and challenge you. It doesn't mean you listen to them all, but you need to be open to, to, to their challenges and say, okay, she said that, she doesn't think it will, it will work. Because a lot of people will say no. A lot of people have said no to me. And, and mm-hmm. so it doesn't mean you have to follow all that advice, but you do need to put yourself in a position where you're challenged. And at some point, say to yourself, you know, maybe this is not where I should put the next five years of my life because actually there are some valid points. How exactly would I scale this to a, a business that could sustain itself and ultimately become profitable and, and have value? Right. So uh, I like your your angle of talking about a good business because it's, it's so much more important than just a good idea. Transcription by itself is not a new space, but I know you're doing some new things in it. So talk to me about your go-to-market strategy. How are you taking trend to market that you believe is going to help it grow and scale um, successfully? Well, it goes back to what I said earlier. I think that, that, that the 21st century, the voice economy of audio and video communication needs tools that allow you to effortlessly navigate so that the actual burden uh, of discovery, transcription, uh, physical this, the building of the story is not where where the energy goes. The energy goes into creativity, and and so by building a, a, an end to end story building platform, that's where we we really are creating something distinct from anything else in the market. Uh, you know, there are some overlaps with some other tools. There's no question, but no one's focused as broadly as we are on enabling people to do things with either raw or live video or audio content in a way that that gets that content out fast, accurately, and and seamlessly. And and that's really the goal. Until recently, we called ourselves Beyond Transcription. We playfully rebranded recently. We went through a very exciting branding project, new logo, new website, et cetera. And and our tagline really came from our users. It's uh, speech to text to magic. Mm. I see. Does Trint have any meaning? Ah, Yes, it does, in fact. So when I began this this project, I came up with the name Transcriptor. Don't ask me where, but it was a terrible terrible name. First of all, it's actually Transcriptor, T-O-R, is actually a, a chemical term used in some sort of drug interaction. I'm not sure. And it, but people thought it sounded like a dinosaur too. So I quickly realized that was a terrible thing. This was in 2014 before we even started building. And then I realized we needed a name that uh, was simple and I wanted to be able to get the .com. My goal was to, to create a name that could be verbized, meaning like Google to Google and turned into a noun. So I, I set out for myself a, a goal to create a word that was one syllable, easy to spell, where the .com was available. And I played with the core words around what, what the value proposition was. And they are transcription and interview, Trent. So it's what's called a portmanteau or neologism, depending on how you yeah. use the language. But it's, it's you know, people don't know that the word Viagra is vitality and Niagara. That's actually how they created that drug. And that really? Drug <laughs> it's true. So that, it's similar. A lot of drug names and a lot of product names now are, are, are created that way. And that's what Trent is, transcription and interview. So we trademarked it and, and people use it. People call them Trints. We talk about, trying, you know, why don't you, let, let's Trint it. 
as a verb. So, in fact, what happens is if these words enter the public domain, you actually lose your trademark right. And our trademark lawyer said, be careful about this. But I said, my response was, well, if it works for Google, you know, years ago, it worked for Xerox, too. When, when, when photocopy, when Xerox was synonymous with photocopier. Yeah. Um, and you think of other products like Kleenex, Kleenex in the yeah. UK, in the UK, where I live, Hoover is kind of a generic term for vacuum. Yeah. Uh, in, Fran- in France, Kodak. Le Kodak uh, was for a long time the kind of generic term for photography or for a camera. So I think it's, there are worse things to do than to become part of the common language. I actually used to say to, in, in the early days when I was first pitching to investors and they said, where do you want this company to, to be in five years? I, I was always uh, a little uncomfortable sort of speaking too grandly about numbers when I, I, I just didn't feel it was honest because I just wasn't sure. Mm. And so I came up with this very sort of honest but playful answer. When they asked me that, I'd say, I I want print to be in the dictionary. And that worked because it made them smile. It showed an audacity, but also a sense sense of playfulness. And so it's still the, the aspiration. Nice, nice. I love that aspiration. So given that you're positioning Trin to be a storytelling platform, not just a simple transcription platform, how did you go about figuring out what the average sale price would be? So uh, initially we just started charging by the minute, by the hour, kind of a consumption-based model, which users loved. But then we actually found that quite a lot of users were limiting their usage because they noticed that the more they used, the more they paid. So it it was both good and not good Mm. for consumers, depending on the use case. The other thing was that as we evolved beyond simply doing transcription into this platform where you had people who might use it who actually never transcribe, say you're researching a book and I'm your researcher, the two of us are on trend, you may be using the platform every day, but actually never transcribing because I've uploaded it all on my account. So as we become more of a storytelling tool, the value isn't simply the transcription. It's uh, the actual process of transcription. It's what you're doing with it. Right. So we pivoted away from that mm. uh, to a, kind of a monthly subscription fee with, with the option for unlimited transcription. Mm. And it's true that some casual users, uh, particularly people on very tight budgets, were unhappy and moved to other platforms. To be honest, it's transformed the economics of the company. I mean, you know, we went from being a pretty wobbly company two years ago to being a very financially a very solid company. And the fact is we are seeing, you know, a, a kind of stable usage base and a growth yeah. of usage. Yeah. Uh, so you you can't satisfy everyone. I think that for me as a first-time entrepreneur, you never want to get these notes saying, I've been with you from the beginning and now you're changing your pricing and I can't afford you. And I feel like a personal sense of responsibility yeah. for, for that user who's disappointed and who's frustrated and said, I can't afford this, I don't need it. But the reality is that that if you try to satisfy every every corner of the market, you're just simply going to spread yourself thin. And, and we are looking for people who are serious content creators and who do it on a pretty regular basis, although people do sign up for a month or two if they have a specific documentary or research project. You have to decide where you sit in the market. And 
we're a more expensive tool because we offer more. We offer unlimited, which which uh, our competitors don't. We offer security. We offer collaboration. Uh, we offer customer success and support. We, we do translation into 35, 40 languages now. So this is much more than simply take a conversation, turn it into words. Mm, uh, goodbye. I see. And do you find usage across all industries or are there specific industries that particularly value the combination of functionality that you offer? I think that the answer is that the market is anybody in the world with a laptop or a mobile phone. But the reality is that when you're a startup or now a scale up, you have to stay focused. And so while there are opportunities, for example, in law, in healthcare, we're not aggressively pursuing those at this point, because if you try to do every vertical uh, right. from the beginning, you just can't. Uh, you know, there are specific requirements in healthcare, as you know, that make it very complex to deal in that sector. And yeah. there's a huge amount of customization. Obviously, data security is even more complex through HIPAA and other yeah. uh, requirements. And also, it's candidly, it's quite occupied. You know, there are big opportunities for us there, but there's some big players already there. And they're big sec- segments of the market with nothing in, in them. And so, you know, it just doesn't make sense to make, for example, healthcare for us a priority. Mm-hmm. I, we get approached quite a lot by healthcare providers, and and at some point we may go in there. But I think, you know, somebody once said to me, and I think it's true of any startup, the F word in startups is focus. Yep. To go back to your earlier question, decide what you are going to do and make sure it's a clear focus. Who are the users? What's the use case? What are the personas that you're trying to satisfy? A lot of people approach me about interesting ideas and you go, yeah, but that's just not the business we're doing. It's a great idea. Somebody will do it. Good luck to them. Or if you want to do that, if you want to guarantee us a revenue of a million bucks, we can specifically build a, you know, a team around that project and we can customize for that use case. But we're not going to put the million bucks up to change our focus for your specific use case. Yeah, that sounds like a a trap that a lot of people fall into, especially in your earlier days where you're trying to get your revenues. People outside of uh, software development don't really understand this role of product manager and head of product. It's something I candidly knew nothing about until I got into this. And and there are many things I did wrong, but I think one of the things that I would say others should learn from my mistakes is bring in a product manager earlier than I did. I I remember one of our investors saying, Jeff, you don't need a product manager because you're the product manager. That's actually wrong. I am the product visionary, but that is different from being a product manager with a skill set. And I do not have that. And I have a huge amount of respect for those who do. And you know, a product manager says, okay, what's the use case? And how do we make this work for you? And, and why are you having trouble with this? Our head of product has kind of conditioned me with a, an electronic cattle prod. When I ask for something, he'll go, okay, Jeff. So if we do that, what aren't we going to do? You only have so much engineering and product capacity, product design capacity. So you have to make tough decisions. And a lot of those decisions are what not to do. Mm, Really good advice. What other mistakes do you feel you've made as a first-time entrepreneur? How many how many days do we have on this podcast? Um, I mean, <laughs> I, I, listen. I think you make mistakes all the time, and I I, I think one of the things you real, I realize about business is just because I don't have a Harvard MBA, the guys with Harvard and the women with Harvard MBAs make a lot of mistakes too. They just make different ones. It would be uh, misguided to think that anybody in business doesn't make mistakes. I think the thing is to acknowledge the mistakes, own them publicly, 
I think that's really important. I think that's another area that that I think is really important in terms of creating the positive culture of, uh, of an uh, innovation-led company. Fix them and learn from them. And I think there's nothing that drives me crazier than people who make mistakes and won't acknowledge them. It's not that I want to rub your face in it. It's just, okay, a mistake was made, own up to it, fix it, and and, and then move on and don't make the same mistake again. As long as it's not through laziness or sloppiness, I, I think we have to accept that when you ask what mistakes I've made, oh my God. In general, uh, we've uh, I've hired, we've hired a lot of really good people, but there is... You're never going to get it perfect. I would say that when you have hired someone who doesn't fit the culture, you generally know it long before you act on it. And I Mm -hmm. think one of the things that I've become better at is to understand when someone isn't working out, just deal with it. Don't bump along. It's expensive, but it's not the money. It's the cost to the, the, the fabric of the company when you have someone who is just not working out, either because they're not good at their job or because they have a kind of toxicity that is really unhealthy for the rest of the culture. And I would say in the few times I've had to actually exit people, I probably knew long before the exit that it needed to happen and should have acted earlier. And I'm better at that now. But, but it's hard. I mean, these are people's lives. They're not bad people by definition. So you, you want to be extremely sensitive when you're doing that. You'd never lose your humanity is, is also one of the important things. Never lose the, your empathy when you're doing things like that. But, but at the same time, tough decisions are what you have to make. And, and so, so make them. Be fair. Be empathetic. But be decisive. Nice. That's really good advice. I have one more question. Given that you you have this experience in interviewing and one of the biggest jobs of a CEO is hiring and interviewing. Are there specific questions that you've come up with that really get to the heart of what motivates a person that allows you to find the right cultural fit? What have you find works in terms of interviewing and hiring? So I'll give you a takeaway from my training as a journalist that I think is quite useful for anyone. There's an acronym called OSNA, open-ended, simple, neutral, active. An open-ended question is, what did you think uh, of uh, breakfast versus was breakfast good? So don't bias the question. Mm. Simple, not not, was breakfast good? Did you you drink your coffee? There are two questions there. People will default to to answering the simplest question, not because they're devious, but because they will ask a simple question, one question. Uh, neutral, don't bias it. Active, which is a journalist thing, don't ask passive questions just because it's the active voice. So you don't really need that. The point being, the question that I ask in interviews is a really simple one. You know, what makes you want to work at Trend? What do you think of the product? Those simple open-ended questions often reveal much more than tell me about the time you had conflict with a colleague. I mean, I think those are valid questions, but I think people tend to spin those. When you ask simple questions, what makes you want to work at Trent or, or what do you think of the product? There, is, there are a thousand ways to go and it's incredibly revealing to see which way you, you take it. And, and, you know, I'm not giving you any guardrails by asking that. I'm just saying, tell me why we're talking. And if out of that, I hear a passion, I hear an understanding of the product, the opportunity, an understanding of the culture, because, because I'm at this stage now, I'm not the first person people talk to. There, I'll tell you, there's nothing more devastating in an interview 
it's, it's still, I still, a little part of me dies when I ask people, what do you think of the product? And they say, oh, well, I haven't had time to try it. I think, what the, I mean, yeah. it, it kills me when that happens. It's like, wait a minute, you're interviewing and, and, you know, I don't have an inflated sense of self, but you made it, you know, first of all, nowadays people shouldn't make it to the, the, the stage where they meet me when that happens, but it still happens occasionally. And I go, really? You've actually gotten this far in the process and you haven't tried the product. You haven't even looked at some of the videos online. And I mean, I remember once we were hiring a sales manager. I flew to Toronto where we have our North American office. And when we were opening our Toronto office, I guess almost two years ago, I interviewed a guy and that happened. And I was just, I really liked him. And I was just, I was just so deflated when he told me he hadn't even looked at the product. And, and I just thought it's over. I'm not going to hire this guy. You know, you haven't even looked at our website. How did you get into this interview? And he, he said, tell me how it went. And I just was honest. I said, listen, I just flew across the ocean for these interviews and you didn't have 15 minutes to look at our website and to, to, to give the product a try. You know, it's even to watch a video, I said, how would you feel if you were sitting where I am? And his face just fell and he said, you're right. I'm sorry. I've learned a lesson. And, and it's true. I'm not yeah. going to hire you if you don't have the courtesy to even yeah. take a look at what we do. Anyway, I, I've gone way off track here. But in interviewing, keep it simple nice. and keep it open-ended. Don't push people in the direction of an answer and see where they take you. Nice, nice. Really solid advice. And I think one that is um, valuable because that's something that entrepreneurs and CEOs are doing all the time. So thank you very much for that advice and insight. Okay. In the last few minutes, I have this round of rapid fire questions that are less about Trent and the business and more just about you and getting to know you better. So my first question is your bucket list. Are there things that you want to accomplish personally? Yeah, I'm a cyclist. I'm a road cyclist. And I I really want to take some time to cycle from London to Barcelona, but I would love to cycle across Europe. And I don't really want to cycle around the world, but I'd be happy to cycle across uh, Canada or the US. I'm not big on camping. I I do wilderness canoe trips. Actually, on my bucket list is the Nahani River in northern Canada, one of the great canoe Mm. trips of all times. It's a two-week trip and it takes about a week to get there and back. There's only about a six-week window when you can do it. So that's actually high on my... What is so unique about Uh, it? It's in the tundra. It's north of the tree line. Uh, there's a huge waterfall there. It's a, and it's incredibly remote. But if you Google the Nahani River, you'll understand why I want to do it. I've, I, I know people who've done it and it's absolutely on my bucket list, but it's just a huge trek to get up there and uh, incredibly expensive. And I've traveled um, in, in Canada to every province, but never north of the tree line in Canada. I've yeah. been north, far north. And so that's... That, that's my bucket list, that and, and cycling. So physical things okay. generally, okay. I guess. Okay. Be. What about books? Do you have any recommendations, either fiction or nonfiction of books that have really made an impact, stayed with you? Well, I think the, the one book that I do recommend to people relating to entrepreneurship is, is uh, a small and very easy, but fascinating read about the explorations of Sir Ernest Shackleton and his failed mission to the Antarctic. It's actually called Shackleton's Way, Lessons oh. in Leadership. Okay. And it's an analysis of his leadership style. And what's astonishing about him is that even by today's standards, he was a modern thinker. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason his 
what was it, uh, 20 or 30 uh, men on that ship survived two years in, in polar ice in the most miserable conditions is because of his leadership. And, and it's phenomenal to read. And the, the, the writers have sort of analyzed what it was about his leadership skill set that allowed for 100% survival under the most horrific conditions. So Shackleton's way. Well, um, I have to look it up. And, that sounds interesting. Uh, okay. Well, well, I think we're at the end of our time. So thank you so much, Jeff, for an extremely unusual and fascinating and insightful conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed my hour with you. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. A, a, a real pleasure. Thank you.